Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. I'm Abby. And I'm your editor, Bryce. And welcome to part one of our episodes covering the life and crimes of Ted Bundy. So grab your cup of coffee and let's get into it. Our story begins on the night of November 24th, 1946, when a young boy by the name of Theodore Robert Cowell was born in what I would describe as a home for unmarried mothers. He was born to a woman by the name of Eleanor Louise Cowell, and he was there for just two months. It's worth noting that she most often went by just the name Louise, so that's how I'm going to refer to her. And she had initially planned to place him up for adoption, but her father, whose name was Sam Cowell, um, spoke against it and wanted the family to come to Philadelphia with him instead. On the surface, the family seemed relatively normal, but as you start to examine some of the family members, you start to reveal some certain traits that kind of can raise some theories and curious thoughts about maybe this sort of influenced how he grew up. For example, his grandmother had two notable traits that she suffered from, both depression and agoraphobia, which to most people, agoraphobia is pretty commonly thought of as just the fear of open spaces. But as you get deeper into it, which is kind of similar to when people say they have OCD, it's a lot deeper and a lot more complex than that. So with agoraphobia, it's really more of a fear of any environment or situation that could cause anxiety or just discomfort in general. So that could be anything from public transport, shopping centers, or just leaving home in general. And then if you take a look at the grandfather, we learned that he had some pretty violent raging tendencies when it came to his temper. And everyone around him was affected by this. Family members, fellow employees, even animals at times. Um, And many theorized that Ted was a victim of his grandfather's abuse, even though Ted himself claims that the two had a very good relationship. It's also said that the grandfather would engage in conversations with imaginary subjects. So not really sure what was going on there. Maybe he needed lithium. Also, at one point, it's said that Ted's aunt woke up to him placing knives around her while she was sleeping underneath the covers, which is just really creepy. So Ted would just lay, like, knives around her? Yeah, so he would, like, slip them under the covers, I guess, That's surrounding so her body while she oh, was man. sleeping. And she woke up in the middle of him doing this, and they just kind of stared at each other, and he didn't really have any sort of, like, startled reaction to it. It was just like, oh, I guess I'm done. So was he, like, sleepwalking, or did they ever look into that further? It was said by the family members that a lot of this behavior was pretty repetitive. Maybe not necessarily the knife part, but just weird, odd behavior like that, which I'll get into a little bit later with his great aunt. She mentions some of that repetitiveness, but yeah. Were they ever concerned? A little bit. I think they were. I would have been concerned. In fact, she's quoted, the aunt is, in a Vanity Fair article where she says, I remember thinking at the time that I was the only one who thought it was strange. Nobody did anything. And there was a psychiatrist named Dr. Dorothy Lewis, who's also quoted in that same article saying um, that only in very seriously traumatized children who have either themselves been the victims of extraordinary abuse or have witnessed extreme violence among family members. So that would have been from the grandpa? Potentially, yeah. 
And which is interesting because there's there's all of these things that you discover that either he was doing or family members were doing around him that you would think could lead to that type of behavior. But And maybe you guys came across this too, or we'll talk about it later, but when he talked about it as an adult later on, he said, there's nothing in my childhood that would have pointed towards this type of, of lifestyle. Nobody would have ever guessed it. So it's kind of contradictory, I think. Something... I think that is really well known about Ted Bundy and I came up with it in my research a lot is that he tried to pretend even after he was arrested like he was just this normal dude he never wanted to accept that there was something off with him yeah that comes up a lot as he's growing up trying different hobbies and extracurricular activities and sports Um, so I'll get into that later well, part of me is wondering if a lot of the, like, if he did have traumatic memories as a child that he just repressed them and he doesn't remember exactly what happened, but that's subconsciously what was causing something. Possibly, or I know that when he was going through with investigators talking about the stuff that he did, it was almost like he was running to retell his story how he wished it would have been, sort of like telling his own biography in his own new way. And so that could be shame or guilt trying to rewrite history for him or it could just be repressing memories who knows but that's that's one of the big things that definitely keeps coming up with him and before i get too much further into his childhood i thought it was interesting that while he was really young he actually thought that his mother was his sister i don't know if you guys came across that too but that sounds like so many horror movies and like dramatic movies Yeah, and one of the major books written about him, The Stranger Beside Me, written by Anne Rule, she kind of discusses that a little bit and either quotes him or wrote about the fact that eventually he kind of figured it out on himself and it took him like well into his childhood, like into his teens, I think, before he like, I don't know, the whole situation was weird and maybe he didn't tell people that he thought that, but he just kind of had that instinct at first that it was his sister. I don't know, it was weird. So there's no logical reason for why he thought that not really no for me that makes it sound like she wasn't a very involved mother um maybe she was too laid back and not that motherly figure i think he just misappropriated the roles and responsibilities of mothers and sisters a bit and either kind of blended them together or i think it was just one of those things that like i'm sure we all have them were just something that we believed as a kid that we didn't really like feel the need to say out loud because we thought it would be obvious to everybody else but then eventually like oh yeah i guess that's supposedly not true but so who knows it could be something like that i just always think about moms with their kids and how much they talk in like the third person like mom loves you mama loves you you know things like that and i wonder if she was saying it and he just didn't connect with it or if that was lacking And one of his quotes where he did talk about it, sort of explained it, and then sort of made it confusing again. This is the one thing that I could find about it. He says, quote, Maybe I just figured out that there couldn't be 20 years age difference between a brother and a sister, and Luis always took care of me. So that's how he, like, discovered that was that mindset of the age gap. But then he goes on and says, I just grew up knowing that she was really my mother, which then just kind of throws it back into the wind again. Like, did he really know? Sounds like he's just trying to cover it up. Another family member that reaffirmed a lot of the repetitiveness of the way that his personality was shifting comes from his great aunt. And she recounts a time where they were waiting at a train station during a late evening. And she describes what was one of many episodes where he would just turn into a completely different person and to the point where she was almost afraid of him. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that he was like violent, but just that he was not 
himself anymore and it was and it was random and it was for apparently quite a bit of time and so that sort of shows that even from a very young age there were these dark cracks in his personality that were starting to show so by the age of three is when his family makes their first major move and this was to a city called tacoma in washington so something interesting that happened right before the move or i think probably a couple years before the move is his mother actually went to a courthouse in Philadelphia and changed his last name from Cowell to Nelson. So now he has a completely different last name, which from all that anybody can tell is completely unrelated to anything. There is no record of a Mr. Nelson ever being involved with Louise. And so it's not really certain why she chose that name. It's oddly suspicious, I think. You think so? My first thought was, who's she trying to get away from that? Or, like, who are they on the run from? Or they don't want to be found by? Well, eventually, an investigator does get some information from her about why she did it. And it turns out that it was mostly for his own protection. So, some of her family had developed a bit of a negative stigma in the community from the last name. So, like I mentioned, the grandfather had pretty serious anger issues, and there were just, there were some other things going on in the family that she didn't want him to have to be attached to, and also the fact that he was, in his words, that he would say um, later on, an illegitimate child. So, she was just trying to help distance him from some of his history, some of his past. So he changes his last name to Nelson right before they make this move to Tacoma, Washington. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So now we're in the year 1951 when they've made this move. And they are living with her uncle, Jack Cowell. And when asked about this move in general, Ted describes it as life wasn't as sweet there, but it wasn't a nightmare. So overall, he wasn't super happy with it. He didn't really like the area near Seattle all that much. Later in the year, his mother ends up meeting a man by the name of John Bundy. So that's where the last name starts to get involved. The infamous last name of Bundy. And he was a veteran. He also went by the name Johnny, and he was one of the cooks at the Madigan Hospital in Fort Lewis, which is in Washington. And before the end of that same year, they had fallen in love and were married. And so this whole ordeal upset Ted even more. He's already unhappy with the move, and now his mother, which is really the only positive role in his life, her attention's all on this new guy that she's now married to. And so in a sense, he was kind of jealous of his mother's new relationship. And so he went so far as to have public tantrums. And there's one example cited where they were in a Sears store and he just wet himself in front of everybody as a way to just cause a scene. And so, however, even after all of this, John Bundy still really cared for the boy and would go on to adopt him which would then give him the second and last legal name change. So now his name is finally Ted Bundy. So the small family then tries to move to a more rural part of the area. Um, But this ended up being pretty short-lived, and they moved right back near Tacoma, just in time for Ted to start kindergarten. And 
At the time, they had settled into what can be described as an Italian Catholic neighborhood. And so it's worth noting that they did go to church pretty regularly. So most of the normal parts of their lives were um, pretty consistent as far as going to church and doing Boy Scouts and things like that. Um, That sort of lifestyle they were starting to implement. So like I said earlier, from the surface, it seemed like a pretty normal family. So they had moved into a fairly spacious house and... A few years later, the family went through yet another move while he was in second grade to the west side of Tacoma on Skyline Drive. And over the coming years, there would be some more additions to the family. Luis and John would begin having children, the first of which was in 1952, a daughter named Linda. Then in 1954, they would have another child, Glenn. 1956, they'd have another child named Sandra. And then finally, in 1961, Richard. So a pretty full family at this point, which from Ted's perspective, is just pulling more and more attention away from his mother. When asked about the growing family later on in his life, Ted described feeling close to only his mother and his youngest sibling, Richard. He said that because of the large age gap, which would be about 15 years, I think, sort of gave him a sense of paternal protection to his younger brother. So the other three siblings, he wasn't all that close to, apparently, just him and his youngest brother. Which is crazy to me to think, because that youngest brother was born in 61, so he'd be like 50 now. And I just think it's crazy that he like grew up and he's like living his Almost life. Almost 60. Yeah. Oh, math isn't my forte. But still, like definitely young enough to still be alive. 61? 1961. So 60 years would be 2021. I just think it's crazy to me because he's had to live like the last 30 years of his life knowing who his older brother, who probably looked up to, turned out to be. Yeah, it makes me wonder how much of his family is still alive. Because he had four siblings. I'm not I'm not really sure. That wasn't something that I ended up researching into. But just to think about like if your sibling ended up being somebody like Ted Bundy. It's... So I'm going to discuss the relationship between Ted and his stepdad, John, a little bit more. Um, Ted does confess that he did love his stepdad, but their relationship was very far from perfect. For example, Ted would often take advantage of the fact that John had a less than average intelligence. And he would take advantage of this by initiating arguments just because just because he knew that he could provoke his stepfather and get the best of him and at times this would lead to john trying to swing at him just out of frustration which sort of makes you wonder if there was any abuse going on but it said that that's as far as it went just teasing each other pretty dramatically in other situations ted would display pretty materialistic tendencies he was always wanting the expensive clothing and other expensive items to be purchased for him however his stepfather could almost never provide that for him because his job wasn't the best and neither was his mother's. So this led to something rather funny, which was that Ted sometimes would wish that he was instead adopted by like a Western star couple like Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, who were American singers at the time, assuming that if he was adopted by them, then they would give him whatever he wanted. I would love to be adopted by Blake Shelton and Gwen Stefani. Just throwing that out there. So there's a few other parts of his childhood that I want to touch on. One of them being when he discovered that he was, as I said, in his words, an illegitimate child. So there are a couple different ways in which this story is told. I'm going to tell you the one that seems to be the most commonly accepted, which is that a cousin of his who was named John, just like his stepfather, kind of just threw it in his face that he was an illegitimate child or called him a bastard, whatever it was, as just a way to upset him. And upon hearing this, Ted didn't believe him. So he went and found his birth certificate and under where it said father, supposedly it said unknown. And that's when he discovered that he, in fact, did not really have a biological 
father that he knew of and started to put together and felt ashamed of the fact that he seemed to be illegitimate. The other story that's told is much less exciting, which is just that he was just looking through some old papers and filings and just came across it. So those are the two ways that it's said that he discovered this. And so in general, this was just another thing that really upset Ted, made him quite bitter about it for much of his life, I'm sure the rest of it. And this can be considered one of the real life-changing moments for him, and so much so that there's a quote from him in one of the pre-sentence investigation reports. I don't know if this is something either of you guys read, but it is said in the report, it is of interest that the defendant displayed marked signs of hostility when asked about his early childhood. Specifically, when he was asked about his real father's whereabouts, his face became quite contorted and reddened, and he paused momentarily. He then gained composure and replied rather succinctly and said approximately, you might say that he left my mother and me and never rejoined the family. So even years and years and years later, something that still very much bothered him. It's crazy to me that he can look so agitated and feel so agitated and then just stop and shut it off and give like a very polite answer. It's kind of creepy. Yeah, which was probably a method that he definitely had to teach himself how to do for both being able to trick people into kind of doing what he wanted to go about his murders and also as he started to get into the sentencing process. See, I think of it a little bit opposite as you, Bryce. Not that he had to teach himself how to shut off the emotion, but how that he had to teach himself to feel the emotion or that sociopathic tendency where he was like, I don't know how to feel it. So he was mimicking other people's emotions and trying to seem normal. But his, I don't know necessarily that he felt emotion. You mean just as an adult? Because he definitely did as a kid. It was something that definitely bothered him and people would tease him about. I was thinking more like as a kid, maybe he kind of learned to feel those emotions because he saw that people expected him to react that way. And so he was like, if people are picking on me, I probably should be angry about it. Or I mean, even if you like see the way other people react to things or watch a movie or read a book or anything, you can figure out how the normal person, normal, typical person would react to something in a certain situation. It's interesting to me that you said that because in all the years I've like heard about Ted Bundy and researched him recently, I've never looked at him as having a complete lack of emotion. I always saw him as kind of driven by emotion where his crimes are just so violent and angry, it seems like. But obviously he is lacking something because of his crimes, how many he committed. Well, I feel like it's likely that he's verging on some sort of, I don't know if I want to call it multiple personalities or something, but like, I'll draw your attention back to what his great aunt said, where there were times where he would just completely shift into an entirely different person so much that it would frighten her. And so certainly there's part of him fully capable of normal emotions, which is why, you know, he did have a couple of really good friends throughout school that I'll talk about later. But then also there were times where it seemed like he had a complete lack of empathy or anything like that. And so maybe, maybe there is some part of him, like you're saying, Erica, that he almost had to force himself to appear to be normal while he was experiencing that. Yeah. So when you talked about the aunt earlier saying that it was like he was a different person. I didn't go to him having like dis- like sort of different personalities necessarily, but more that sometimes he would have that barrier up where he was showing certain emotions and empathy or whatever or acting like a normal kid. But then sometimes he would just let that act go away and he would just be who he felt like he actually was, which was that angry person who didn't have the empathy or any of that those feelings. 
Which I think what you just said kind of points to like some of his interviews when you watch him. It's almost like when someone says something that jars him, he kind of stops and laughs and then keeps talking like he's reading some script or something. It's like he's disassociating his real inner self from what he's wanting to portray. That really makes me wonder or wish that there was an official psych eval done on him. And I don't, unless you guys came across it, I don't think that there was at least anything that was like serious and properly done by an actual trained psychiatrist or anything. Because if there's something there that either verges towards multiple personality or somebody that has complete lack of empathy, and I know you can just probably describe that as a sociopath, but I feel like there's got to be something else in there. So in my research, I did find a few different psych evals that were if you want to call them an eval, they were done years after he had already died. And so we're going to talk about those later on in the episode, but I couldn't find anything that was necessarily done with him when he was alive and being interviewed. So those are mostly based off just like the behaviors he exhibited, the things that he'd done, things that are on the record. Yes. There are some other parts of his early life that I want to mention, and these will get into some of his schooling, his friends, some of the extracurricular activities that he took part in. So when people talk about what they remember growing up with him, and whether it's family members or friends or just other people in the community, a lot of them seem to remember him as being a kind of social outcast. Um, Even though he was quite involved in the community, like I said earlier, family did go to church every Sunday. He was involved in Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, different church camps, tried different sports, but he just never seemed to really fit in. So in examples of Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts, things like tying knots, shooting guns, races, he never seemed to just get it. He never seemed to really fit in with any of those. And so because of all this, he started to develop a kind of temper tantrum and would sort of find his own ways to entertain himself. And so he really enjoyed scaring people and setting traps, like real legitimate traps. And there is an example of a girl that was seriously injured by one of the traps when she walked into it, basically tore the entire side of her leg off. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. There were also some other very weird things that happened um, when he was in, when he was at Hunt Junior High. It was said by some of his classmates that he would hide in the broom closet and masturbate in the broom closet of the classroom and when some of the other boys would catch him they would throw water on him because apparently it happened many times and they would wait for him to do that catch him and then throw cold water on him and just tease him relentlessly that means these boys were just carrying around cold water waiting to catch him to do that in a sense yeah it's weird on a couple levels right not just with ted However, these are accounts of what people have said. Of course, Ted has denied any and all of that as happening, but there's that. I wouldn't put it past him, honestly. So as he grows up and enters high school, he's becoming more and more of a loner. Although he did have two consistently good friends by the names of Terry Storwick and Warren Dodge. And just a little interesting fact, Ted and Warren were actually born on the same day, just 20 minutes apart. And so maybe that had something to do with their good friendship. Another quick note about his days in junior high. 
Uh, one of the things that he wanted to do, um, he ran for student body vice president and lost. And that was another thing that sort of rolled into things chipping away at his confidence that we start to see develop a lot more later on. And throughout high school, he tried several sports. He was reportedly very good at track doing the hurdles. Uh, he also played football for a while and he wanted to join the basketball team, but was ultimately declined because he was, quote, too small. As he grew closer to adulthood, he was known to be a serial shoplifter, often stealing what he needed for some of his hobbies, such as skiing, because his family was considered in more of the not-have type of group. So he would often steal things to be able to do the activities that he enjoyed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. He eventually graduates high school in 1965 and begins taking classes for psychology and oriental studies at the University of Puget Sound. After just two semesters, however, he ended up transferring to the University of Washington in Seattle. He went through a few jobs during this, including bagging groceries and stocking shelves at a Seattle Safeway store. However, his theft was still an issue, which caused him to be unable to keep a job for more than a few months at a time. However, as part of his psychology studies, he worked as a volunteer for the night shift of the suicide hotline in Seattle. And while working there, he would meet a former policewoman and crime writer, Anne Rule, which I mentioned earlier. And she would go on to write one of the most popular biographies of him, The Stranger Beside Me. While he was enrolled at the University of Washington in 1967 is when he started one of his first notable relationships with a fellow student by the name of Diane Edwards, who also seems to go by the pseudonym of Stephanie Brooks. So they met while they were both enrolled at University of Washington, but the next year after her graduation in 1968, she returned to her family home in California and also ended the relationship because she was, quote, fed up with what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition. So this threw him into a fairly deep depression and... Ted Bundy ended up dropping out of college and traveled east out towards his birthplace of Burlington, Vermont. And it said that there he visited the local records clerk and supposedly did some research to try to discover the truth about his parentage. So after this, he returns back to Washington later in 1968 and supposedly was a more focused and dominant person is what he was described as. And so at this point, he's managing the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign and ends up re-enrolling at the University of Washington with a major in psychology. He becomes an honor student and is well-liked by his professors. 1972 is when he finally graduates from university with his degree and soon afterward is when he starts to work for the state Republican Party. So he develops a fairly close relationship with Governor Daniel J. Evans. And so part of his responsibilities were to follow the Democratic opponent around the state, recording the various speeches and then reporting back to Evans. A small scandal then later developed when the Democrats found out about Ted Bundy, who had been posing as a college student the whole time to do his research. So now in the fall of 1973, 
Bundy enrolls back into the law school of University of Puget Sound, but he does poorly. He's skipping classes and then finally drops out in the spring of 1974. However, it is worth noting that in the previous year, the summer of 1973, when he was on a business trip to California, he came back into contact with his ex-girlfriend, Diane Edwards. According to her, he seemed to have a new look and attitude. He seemed to be serious, dedicated professional who had been accepted into a law school. So then they start dating. Ted and Diane date throughout the rest of the year. She ends up accepting his marriage proposal. And then two weeks later, just after New Year's of 1974, he just decides to end the relationship and never answers her calls ever again. And this is what ultimately leads him into the major chapter of his life that starts to involve murders. So something that happened simultaneously to the timeline that Bryce was just telling you is in 1969 until 1976, he was actually dating another girl. So while he was dating Diane, he was kind of two-timing the girls. The other girl's name is the one that a lot of people really know about, Elizabeth Klopfer, and she went by Liz. Liz actually wrote a book titled The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy, and it's 183 pages long, and she used the pseudonym Elizabeth Kendall to write the book. So this is all her account coming from that book of this time that she was dating Ted. So, like I said, she met Ted in 1969 when she was a divorced single mother. She was working a job as a secretary at the University of Washington Medical School. And one night, her friends had convinced her to get a babysitter and go out to the bar for a drink that night, which was something that she never did. And she decided that she might as well just go out once. She deserved it. She'd been working for quite a while. In the book, she talks about how she was trying to escape a creepy guy in the bar and she saw Ted sitting alone in the corner looking sad. So she decided to approach him and she said, quote, you look like your best friend just died, end quote. And one, I just want to say that that's a really brave sentence to say to somebody because I don't know that I could ever do it in case their best friend did just die. (laughs) And this was apparently the right line for her to use and they sparked up a conversation. They talked for quite a while and he ended up going home with her. And according to her book, it was just a platonic night when he got there. They started dating shortly after. Liz talks about how her and Ted had a pretty unstable relationship, but they almost got married. So she says that his feelings for her were strong but they were really inconsistent and one of the quotes from her book says quote we would be getting along fine and then a door would slam and i would be out in the cold until ted was ready to let me back in i'd spend hours trying to figure out what i had done or said that was wrong and then suddenly he would be warm and loving again and i would feel needed and cared for end quote so it seems like at every point in his life he has consistent characteristics that have a lot to do with bouncing back and forth between two different types of personalities. I don't really like describing it like that, but he seems to flip back and forth between two types of behaviors. And that'll just go back to us discussing whether or not that is actual different personalities or if it's him remembering that he needs to have real emotion and then trying to hide it again. It's, it's hard to know. Yeah. And so another story in the book that actually kind of reaffirms his back and forth of like the personalities takes place in February of 1970. And this was when Liz told Ted that she wanted to call him her husband, Ted, instead of her boyfriend. She was ready to take that next step. So they went to the courthouse together. They borrowed $5 from a friend and they bought a marriage license. They had to borrow $5? 
as you do. Yeah, they. I, I don't. I don't have words for it. I think it's weird that they borrowed five dollars from a friend, but you know that's how they did it. So, a few days later, after they got their marriage license, Liz's parents arrived in Seattle for a visit, and she asked Ted to move his stuff out of the apartment because she was worried that it would upset her conservative parents that she was living with somebody out of wedlock. This really pissed Ted off, and she recalls him saying, "Quote: If you're that hung up on what your parents think, then you're not ready to get married." End quote. And then he tore up the marriage license and walked away. $5 down the drain. $5 that they had to borrow. I think that's exactly how you get divorced, right? You just rip up the license? Yeah. I mean, marriage is just a paper, right? Well, they weren't married yet. They'd just gotten the marriage license and signed it. Oh. So, yeah, divorced. Yeah. Easy. So, done. Over. Bye. (laughs) I wish life was different. (laughs) Liz was really starting to get the feeling that Ted Bundy wasn't the person that she thought he was. Join us back for part two of this story next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.